We don't go out of our way to try to time these things, but um, it just doesn't feel like we could be at a more appropriate chapter in Mark's gospel on a communion Sunday than Mark chapter eight. And then next Sunday, as we think about what God is doing on behalf of his, through his church on behalf of the fatherless, it's hard to imagine in Mark's gospel a better chapter than Mark chapter nine. And so it's just something that uh, we're always excited when that happens. It's not our intentionality uh, that brings it about. We just said, let's go through the gospel of Mark and God works out all those kind of cool little details and we're thankful for that. But we're gonna read Mark chapter eight in its entirety if you'll follow along. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered them, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmantua. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten the disciples to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Don't enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. 
And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Stay with me. Verse 1, chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And that will conclude our reading this morning. One of the things that this chapter gives us insight into is the very heart of Jesus. What, what makes him tick? What, what brings him joy? What grieves him deeply? How he thinks about things? And whenever you're getting to know someone, there's always sort of a superficial level of getting to know them. And on a day like this, you might talk about the weather this week or the colors or just something that you know might be on the mind of everybody, but not doesn't necessarily give you a window into them uniquely and specifically. This chapter just gives us, as story after story is being told, part of what we're doing is getting to know who is this person, Jesus. How does he think? How does he think about people? How does he think about situations? What brings him joy and what grieves his heart? And the first thing we're told in this chapter, as we see his heart, is that he has compassion on this crowd. There's a group of people that have been following him for three days and they followed him to the point that they're all together in a desolate place, in a wilderness type place. There's not a grocery store down the road. There's not a restaurant where they can stop in and eat. They are out there. And he looks out on these people and it's a great crowd, but they believe in him enough and are interested in him enough that they followed him, not just for a moment, for consecutive days. And here they are, in the wilderness. And instead of Mark just saying, and they, and they had that, and so he fed them, it says in verse two, Jesus speaking, I have compassion on the crowd. As he looks upon them, and they're maybe exhausted from three days of travel. They're weak because of limited food. Jesus is someone who looks at them, all of them, and he has compassion on them. When he sees their need, he is moved by it. When he sees their need, he is moved and feels in himself compassion. As a result of that, he feeds them. 
And much like the feeding before, from everything we can tell, we're not sure that anybody else besides the disciples know that what's going on is a miracle. Because what he's doing is he's not trying to demonstrate just his power to them. He feels compassion for them. His mind is on them. And so he has them sat down. He has them organized. The disciples know we don't have enough food to feed everybody. It doesn't give us any sense that the people know that. I mean, as far as they know, Jesus can do anything and he seems to have resources. We're following him. We're learning things about him. The disciples know this is a miracle. And only a miracle can make it possible to feed them. So there's actually a little bit of back and forth between Jesus and them. They say, what are, how are we going to feed them in this desolate place? So he says, how many loaves do you have? And they say, we have seven. And he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he sets it before them, and they do the feeding. He involves them in the work. So if you're just one of the people sitting in the crowd, all you know is that Peter just gave you food to eat, or Judas just gave you something to eat. That's all you know. These disciples, these followers of Jesus, are providing for us in it. And he's providing enough for them so that they can depart and get back on their journey. They've come this far with me. They need to go back, and I'm giving them enough to go back. One of the things that's different about this feeding than the other one is the amount of leftovers are much more significant in this one than the other one. We talked about the first feeding was just perfect provision for everyone's needs. These disciples, though, they go from having not just what they had before, but everybody else is fed, they go from having one loaf each, seven loaves, to now seven baskets full. And the word for baskets here in the Greek is, gives a sense of a large basket. It's, there is abundance. There is enough for all of them and for us. Jesus is demonstrating to them that he can meet their needs. But his focus, again, coming from his heart, is being driven by his compassion toward them. And because that's his primary motivation and reason for doing what he's doing, he's not that interested on whether or not he gets the press or the immediate thanks from the crowd for what he's done. It's so different than what we have in today's day where some people claiming to be in Jesus' name go to other countries in this world and they don't go to hospitals, they hold rallies. And only if you come to the rally and you give lots of money ahead of time, then they might heal you in Jesus' name. Or they might feed you in Jesus' name. Whereas for Jesus, moved by compassion, not an attempt for popularity, not a desire to expand how much money they had as a group of people, he asks nothing from them. He meets them where they have a need and he provides it for them because he's moved by genuine compassion for them, not only for an interest to bring fame and fortune to himself. That's a good test as we try to discern a whole bunch of people who claim to be doing things in Jesus' name. One of the challenges of Mark 8 is to say, if we're saying we're followers of his, do we act in ways that Jesus acted? Do we do things like Jesus would? If not, then we might be naming him, but we're not following him. Because this is characteristic all throughout Mark's gospel of how Jesus is happy 
to do his work quietly, subtly. He doesn't need a thank you in order to have compassion. He has compassion because people have needs. And he reaches out to them. It's one way we see his heart. The next one is when the Pharisees come to him. It says they come, they begin to argue, and they say, show us a sign. I think there's just a bit of irony after this incredibly miraculous thing happens that then this group of people come and say, you know, show us a sign. We don't really know who you are. We, we, there's not enough evidence yet to make a decision about you. Please do something else. Now, the Pharisees weren't there with this whole crowd, but they'd been there for other things. And here again, Mark doesn't just give us Jesus' response to them. Mark tells us what's going on inside of Jesus, what he's feeling, his emotions. It says in verse 11, Pharisees came, began to argue, And seeking from him a sign, verse 12, and Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. There's there's sorrow that Jesus is feeling over the fact that these people aren't even open to knowing who he really is and to engaging him with legitimate questions. They just want to argue with him. They just want to catch him in a trap, and he knows that. And so inside of him, there's sorrow. He sighs deeply because Jesus, one, he knows how lost they are even more than they do. Jesus knows better than they do what their real condition is. But Jesus also knows what the end result of their condition is. And he's looking at them. Here are people who he knows are lost. And he knows when each one of their days will end. And he knows what faces every person after death. And here they are in, for what? For what's worth sacrificing the opportunity to get to know him and the eternal life that he promises, that they're so callous and they're so hard-hearted that all they want to do is argue with him. All they want to do is catch him in a trap because they don't even know how desperate their situation is. It's one of the amazing things about Jesus is that Jesus feels more love and has more patience with people that reject him than any idol can ever have for even its most devoted followers. Does it make sense? Jesus treats those who reject him better than any idol can treat those that follow him with absolute, complete devotion. Why? Because idols aren't real. They can't feel anything. They can't feel anger or compassion. They can't have mercy or give judgment. Jesus can have compassion, can feel grief and sorrow over those who insult him and reject him more than any idol can ever respond to even its most devoted followers. Jesus sees how broken their heart is, so even though he has grief, he doesn't throw on sign after sign. He says there's plenty of signs. 
What you need is not another sign. And so he leaves them, but he leaves them grieved over the hardness of their heart. So here again, we're getting inside his mind, his heart, his emotions, this compassion that he has for the people, this grief that he has for the crowd, and then this patience he has with his disciples. There's Jesus dealing with these disciples. They get on a boat. They forget bread. And if Jesus was you or me, he'd just snap at these guys so much faster at how quickly they can forget the things that he has done. But they're worried. They're, they're debating among themselves, not who Jesus is and not what Jesus can do, but we don't have any bread. No, my good. I don't know if they're wondering if he's going to be mad at them because they forgot something. We don't know exactly what is at the heart of it. But Jesus just says to them, he challenges them for sure. I mean, these aren't compliments. Um, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and ears do you not hear? But then he reminds them of his faithfulness just in the preceding weeks. Don't you remember when I broke the loaves and we fed everyone? How much did we have left over? We had 12. And don't you remember when I did this? And yes, we had that. So he challenges them, but he's patient with them because he doesn't just get rid of them. He doesn't just throw them over the boat. He, they're his disciples, and he reminds them of his faithfulness towards them. He's patient with his disciples. He's more patient with us in our learning curve than we often are with each other. He's much more patient with their learning curve than we often are with each other. So you should have known this by now. How many times do I have to keep reminding you? We celebrate communion regularly because we all need to be reminded all the time, that it's not about what we bring. It's not about what we've done. It's about what he did. It's about what he sacrificed. It's about his resurrection. It's not about us. Why do we do it all the time? Because we're so prone to forget, and we need to remember for us to find courage to deal with the situations we're going through right now, the ones that are going to come up this week. We need to take time to remember his faithfulness all the way up till now. And Jesus has all the patience in the world for that. At his heart, he has all the patience in the world for those who are sincerely following him and don't yet understand entirely what's going on. Then we get this story of a blind man at Bethsaida, which is an amazing story just in terms of the different ways you can understand it. It's an event that takes place. But it's also a parable and a prophecy all in one just in these couple of verses. What do I mean? Well, maybe as you were reading through it, you, you kind of tripped and said, wait a minute, why didn't he just get healed all the way the first time, right? Like Jesus spits on the ground, this guy can't see, says, okay, now what do you see? So I see, I see people, but it's not very clear. People just look like trees. Everything's still kind of fuzzy. So he again provides healing. And it says that now his sight is restored and he can see everything clearly in verse 25. So you just step away and like, did Jesus get, did he, did he say something wrong? Like why, why didn't he just get it all the way the first time? Just, I mean, he's done that before with other people who couldn't see. But there are plenty of times where Jesus provides answers, provides provision in steps, not always 
all at once, automatically. Can he provide all at once, automatically, what this guy needs? Absolutely. But there are plenty of times where he also provides progressively, over time, step by step, bit by bit. Which is the parables that he had shared in earlier in Mark chapter 4 when he talked about um, casting a seed down. The seed has all of the potential of becoming a flourishing plant or tree. Why didn't Jesus just put a tree or a plant there? He, he does do some of his work, actually most of his work, over time, progressively. Allows for development, allows for course correction along the way. Allows for his disciples to think back and say, yeah, how did we forget about that so much? So from this, we, we even get a parable of the people. There's the crowd. They see enough about Jesus that they want to follow him. They gave three days of following him into a desolate place. But there's still some things they don't see clearly about him. There's the disciples who see more clearly than the crowd, but there's still some things that they don't see clearly, which is what's about to come up. So it's an event, it's also a parable of what's been happening up until this point, but it's a prophecy of what's to come. These disciples have been experiencing light that they've never seen before. They have access to information they've never seen, but they don't see clearly yet. And Jesus is willing to bring them along slowly, at a pace that's sensitive to them, so that they can adjust to the work that he's doing. Then in verse 27, after we've seen the heart of Jesus, now we get to the heart of the gospel. Now we get to the heart of the gospel. Their eyes need to go from this fuzzy vision to a clear picture. And so Jesus challenges them in the form of a question. Okay, now who do do people say that I am? And they throw out all kinds of answers. Some are saying you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some you're saying Elijah, others, other prophets. And then in verse 29 is the poignant question. Okay, that's what they're saying. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. Christ is a title. It's to say, you, we could translate it, you are the Messiah or you are the anointed one. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying his name and his title. We're not saying his name and his middle name or his name and his last name. Jesus Christ is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. So that all along, Jesus has been talking about this kingdom that's coming, this kingdom that's coming, the kingdom of God is here. Now he's saying, I'm the king of the kingdom. It's, it's a title of position and authority. So I'm not just telling you news about a kingdom that's coming and I'm gonna point you to it. I'm the king of the kingdom that I'm telling you about. That's the title reserved for the Christ. And he strictly charges them to tell no one because here's what Jesus is dealing with. Why hasn't he revealed it up until this point? Why now? Well, all of the disciples have expectations of what the Messiah would be, of what the Christ would be. So that if Jesus just says, I am the Christ, it's true. What most of these guys are then thinking is, we're about to fight. We're about to revolt. 
we're about to need to make sure we get more weapons in our stash because if he is the Christ, which is kind of what we were hoping, we're about to go attack somebody because the Christ is going to be the one who takes over all the other leaders in the day. So Jesus clarifies to them, yes, I am the Christ. He says, don't go run around and tell everybody that because you don't understand what that means like I understand what that means. And you know that when you're dealing with people and they kind of want to be maybe argumentative with you. And Are you a conservative? Well, I, don't, I want to know what you mean by that before I answer that question. Are you a liberal? Well, again, I want to know what you mean by that before, but certain words are just loaded. And we don't all define them the exact same way. And so if you have the opportunity in a relationship with someone to bring clarity and say, this is what I believe, label it whatever you want to label it. But these are my convictions. This is what I think is true. Okay, I'm not something, and I'm just a part of an agenda here. The people in Jesus' day have all kinds of expectations of what a Messiah is. So for Jesus to simply say, I'm the Messiah, would be to mislead them even though it was true. Does that make sense? He could be misleading them even though he was telling them the truth. So he doesn't do that. What does he do in verse 31? So he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So Jesus is changing now their understanding of what the Messiah, I am the Messiah, but I'm the Messiah who's going to lose. I'm the Messiah who's going to die. What? I'm the Messiah who's not going to attack anyone, even when he's attacked. What what are you going to do? And you want us to follow you? You want us to be there when it happens? Yeah, he says, "I'm, I'm, I'm preparing them. I'm telling them plainly. I don't want to mislead them in any way about what they should expect going forward. I am the Son of Man. I am the Christ. But I'm the Son of Man, the Christ, who must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. And Jesus is getting to the heart of the gospel. That what the disciples need, what the crowds need, what the Pharisees need, is not just some military leader who'll come in and who'll expel Rome and take over and now they can have their party. No, the crowds need to be freed from something other than Rome. The disciples, the Pharisees, they all need to be free from something other than political tyranny. They're bound to something that Jesus can only take care of through his own experience of suffering and death. They have a cancer, a disease that goes within themselves called sin that no external battle can ultimately deal with. Jesus is saying the only way that what you need to be free from can be dealt with is if I'm willing to do this for you. So when I tell you I'm the Messiah, when I tell you I'm the Christ, I'm not telling you to pick up a sword. I'm not telling you to get ready to fight with me. I am telling you I'm going to lose and I'm going to lose on purpose. Because if I don't, then you lose forever. If I don't suffer now, you suffer forever. 
And so I'm not trying to mislead anybody here. I am the Christ. But this is what I'm going to do. This is the heart of the gospel. And so the rest of Mark's gospel is now, it's already been a fast pace, but now we're just, we're, we're finally gonna start heading towards Jerusalem, towards this event where all that Jesus just said is going to take place. None of it is gonna catch him by surprise. We get a bit of how offensive this is to the disciples when Peter says in verse 33, get, or he rebukes him and says, it says, verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And in 33, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's another example where Mark's gospel is coming to us primarily from the testimony of Peter. And when you compare this passage to its parallel in Matthew, what's left out? What is Peter fine to leave unmentioned? The response to Jesus in his statement that Jesus, that he is the Christ. In Matthew, we then hear Jesus say, yes, Peter, great, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And Peter is content to leave the praise that's afforded to him out of it because he also remembers that almost instantly was he not praised after he was praised and that he was still missing the point even when he was with Jesus. Now Peter is someone who understands the gospel, who understands that Jesus has to go all the way to the cross for him, is content in his remembering of the story to say, you don't have to highlight any, any accolades I ever got. That's not the point. Because I was so messed up, I was so in need of salvation that he had to die for me to be set free. And that Jesus gets to the heart of the gospel. And then last, he calls the crowd back to him with the disciples and he gets to the heart of the church. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be a follower of me, be a disciple of me, which is then what we call the church, everyone who's committed to following Jesus, we have to take up a cross and follow him. If we want to save our lives, we're going to end up losing it. If we're willing to lose our lives for his sake and the gospels, they'll be saved. And then just the penetrating question that gets to the heart of the matter for each and every one of us, and this Jesus asks of every person ever born, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? What advantage is it to you? What gain do you really get if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? If you experience temporal bliss but eternal punishment? You gain nothing. And so that's the heart of the challenge to the church to say, this is what I'm gonna go through. This is what's gonna happen to me. Now you, are you willing to forfeit your life? In other words, to say, I'm not gonna try to keep earning this. I'm not gonna try to keep living as if Jesus didn't. I'm gonna acknowledge that I need him, that I'm completely helpless without him, that there is no righteousness of my own. I need his righteousness. I'm willing to say that. Or he said, no, 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 I'm gonna keep working. I'm gonna keep trying. I'm gonna keep reading books. I'm gonna keep doing this. Whatever I can, I'm gonna keep working for it. He says, you keep going down that train. It ends in a crash. 
You wouldn't get on a bridge if at the toll when you entered on, they said, you know, this bridge is going to be good for about 90% of the way, and then the last 100 feet are out. You wouldn't get on a plane over an ocean if the pilot said, I think we can make it 90% of the way. What are you trusting in for your soul? You need something that will get you through more than today, more than a decade. You need to trust in something that can get you through eternity. That's sure and solid, fixed and guaranteed. And then once you believe that that has been secured, that you're on the right road, that the bridge is intact, that the pilot knows what he's doing, shouldn't we then as a church live with the kind of confidence and relief and joy that would come from knowing that the most important thing has been taken care of. That the thing we struggle with the most has been defeated. And that gives us the ability to say, I don't mind losing in this life. I don't mind following the Messiah who failed. I don't mind following the Messiah who refused to fight back when he was attacked. Because I know that he took care of everything I need and is provided in his compassion for me. He has provided an abundance of resources that no person and circumstance in this life can take away. And that's the back, the quote on the back of the handout. When we really embrace this, we realize it is the cross alone that ultimately proves the love of God to us, not the circumstances of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that tells us of your son, that tells us of how great his compassion is, how sensitive his heart is over those who do not listen, who reject him, who ignore him. We thank you that we're not following a swindler who makes false promises but who spoke plainly and clearly to his disciples and to each and every one of us about what would happen to him and what will happen to us. So we just pray now for the humility as we sing these songs together to allow your spirit to speak more truths into our hearts that we need to hear so that we can follow you more closely and trust in you more deeply. Amen.